I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome back to Postcard, the podcast which takes you on an adventure of the imagination. I'm Greg Dickinson, I'm a travel journalist at The Telegraph, and this week I'm really excited to say I'm joined by the actress Miriam Margulies. Now you might know Miriam for her BAFTA-winning role in Martin Scorsese's The Age of Innocence. You might know her as Professor Sprout in the Harry Potter films, or your actual first encounter with Miriam may have been more recently in a hilarious podcast conversation she had with Louis Theroux. While she's best known as an actor and as a political activist, Miriam has travel in her blood. She recently became an Australian citizen. She has a house over in Tuscany, and as you're about to hear in today's episode, she has a veritable archive of travel stories to tell. And as usual, you can see all of Miriam's travel photographs online by following the link in the show notes. But for this episode only, you can also watch a longer version of the video chat, including Miriam's thoughts on people who travel for sex, which we just didn't have space to fit into this episode. If you aren't already a Telegraph subscriber, you can get a 30-day free trial on telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Now, I started by asking Miriam how she's finding lockdown. I hate lockdown. I absolutely respect it. It's saving my life. But do I enjoy it? No. And why is that? Because I need people. Everybody does, don't they? I need I need touch. I need to see people. I want to hear them close to me. I want to hear them breathing and hugging. It, it, it's a human thing. So I feel very deprived. How are you finding it now? Because we're in this weird stage, aren't we, where things are sort of kind of getting back to normal. But also you're still we're still queuing outside supermarkets and the world still is pretty upside down. Well, I'm one of the shielding people because I'm nearly 80 and I have asthma and um, high blood pressure and all kinds of things. So I have to be very careful. So I am not queuing for shops. I get my neighbours to do that or I get it delivered. And I am very frightened of the opening up because for me, it isn't a good piece of news. It's scary. Until we find a vaccine, this is um, a precarious life that I'm leading. Well, should we go? Should we go on a little holiday of the imagination? Should we? Should we talk through some of your some of your photographs? I'm afraid that's all we can do. That's all we can do for but now. But the imagination is a powerful thing. Exactly. Um, so let's start with this first shot. So it's you. You're surrounded by 
a group of people. They're all wearing caps. They all look very happy and kind of healthy and wholesome. And I believe you are in Australia here. Can you tell me a bit about this shot? Yes. Well, th- I think that was before I became a citizen, uh, which was in um, 2013. And I was invited to go for a day on the sailing, the training sailing boat Endeavour in Sydney Harbour. I can't sail, but I love the sea. I love being on the ocean. And these are all very strapping young Australians. They are, aren't they? And it was rather exciting to be with them and just to spend the day on the boat. So I just enjoyed myself. And that's one of the things about Australia. It's a very active place. It's a place Mm. where people are physical. They are running, jumping, triathloning, and every activity that you can name. I do nothing. I am the most physically inactive person I know, which is why I'm so fat. And um, I regret it because there is joy in physical movement. But I have to confess there is even more joy in other people's physical movement. Hmm. So, I I mean, I'm imagining... I'm afraid there's someone at the door. Could you bear it if we stopped for a moment? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, go on. Might be a minute. I'm coming! Someone sent me some flowers. Flowers? I don't know why, but I can't be bothered to look at that now. Um, sorry about that. That's quite all right. That's nice to receive some flowers on a on a, on a drizzly Thursday. So where were we? So I was going to, well, I was going to chat to you a bit about Australia. Oh, yes, well, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to stress that there's, it's wonderful to see other people moving. I like looking at people moving, and that's what I was able to do on, on the boat. Do you think that's maybe why you love Australia so much? It's not the only reason, but I I think it, it is a contributory factor. Unfortunately, obesity is still a, a rising problem there. It used not to be. And when I first went to Australia, everybody was very live and crinkly blue-eyed and gorgeous. I'm afraid they they have regressed a bit, but it's still a country of remarkably good-looking people. I wanted to ask you a bit about that. So your your partner, am I right in thinking your partner's Australian? Yes, she is. And you're now an Australian citizen. I am. What were your what were what were your first encounters with Australia like? You mean the first time I went to Australia? Yeah, yeah. Gosh, woo, that's a long time ago. Well, it was the light that I remember most. The light and the space, the brightness of the sky the real heat of the sun it was a completely different climate I knew I had crossed the world there was no doubt about that and I saw Bondi that's where I wanted to go first and it was just as I imagined this stretch of pleasure with the sea and the people surfing something I've never done and I just thought it was an entirely pleasing physical experience. And I just enjoyed the architecture of of Sydney, the old Georgian architecture, 
of the convict structures. I wish that um, the architecture of Australia had kept up being beautiful, but it's hideous, actually, most of it now. Well, I know, I know you're something of an expert on the country now because you actually, you obviously recently travelled 10,000 kilometres across Australia in a camper van for a documentary that's coming out on BBC Two in a couple of weeks' time. The show is called Almost Australian. Tell me, what was the mission behind it? I wanted to see the parts of Australia that I didn't know because now I've become a citizen and I vote and I have a house there. It seemed ridiculous that I really only know the big cities and Australia is so much more than that and I particularly wanted to meet First Nation people and see their lives and that was what I asked of the producers and that's what they gave me. And how was that? How did you find it kind of meeting those people and and chatting with them? Completely gripping and, and challenging and quite upsetting in some ways because the First Nation... It's the big stain on Australia. It is where all the the sweetness and friendliness and mateship of Australia is suddenly turned off. And you get this poverty-stricken, miserable rabble that nobody takes any notice of or respect has respect for. And they are fantastic people. They are interesting. They they have a culture far older than ours. And we need to learn more about the First Nation and remember that they were the First Nation long before we all turned up. And how did they how did you find that people responded? Because you're obviously turning up with a, a film crew. Did you find it was easy to get people to open up and to be honest with you? My personality is such that I can get on with people and they they trust me. And so when I turn up, I, on the whole, don't put people off. I explain what I'm doing and that, and people like to, to be found interesting and I'm finding them all very interesting. So that's one of the reasons, I suppose, that they talk to me. But everybody was prepared to talk and share their life experience so that others could see how they live because that's what the programs are about and that's what television documentaries are about so that you sit at home and you learn what it's like to be another person were you traveling in a van am i right in thinking yes (laughs) i i actually it was (laughs) that van well just before i did the program I'd, I'd done Lady in the Van, the, the Alan Bennett play in Australia. So I was getting in and out of the van in that play. But getting in and out of a real van was an entirely different matter. It was a huge, one of those camper vans, you know? And what was the driving actually like? Like, what sort of landscapes were you passing through in this enormous camper van? Vast and empty. No people, just miles of road. And it was a different kind of driving than I'd ever known because you didn't have to think about other cars because there weren't any. When you saw a car coming towards you, it was quite uh, unnerving, actually. Australia 
in in the outback is another continent. It is. It's a continent. So I was humbled by it. Travel is an enrichment, isn't it? It's it's you 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 take it all in and you hold it inside somewhere. And my idea of beauty has always been, I suppose, the Renaissance one, which is why we all love Italy so much. But I was having to learn a new kind of beauty in Australia. That desert, those flat expanses, it's a different kind of beauty. I'd like to move on to your second picture now, Miriam, and this keeps us comfortably in the realm of travel TV shows because this is a shot of you and the other stars of the first series of The Real Marigold Hotel, which aired on the BBC just a few years ago. Um, Now, for any listeners who didn't see it, the show was inspired by the film The Exotic Marigold Hotel, but this time it was in real life with you and a group of seven other well-known pensioners travelling to India to see if retirement there might suit you better than in the UK. And in this picture, you're standing in a kind of grand yellow arched doorway with the other stars of the show around you. Where are you exactly here, Miriam? I don't know exactly what the doorway is, whether it's the doorway of the hotel where we stayed, but it's a rather lovely doorway and very typical of of the doorways in Jaipur, which is a glorious old city. And um, I can see that I'm... In my usual trainers, embarrassingly, they're all I ever wear, but we all look very happy. And um, next to me is Patty Boulay, and she's clutching the um, our driver, Janu. And uh, next to me is wonderful Sylvester, who was the seventh Doctor Who. And um, he, he's just a darling boy. Uh, Bobby George, of course, who's just heaven. Roy Walker, very suave as usual in his sunglasses. And um, there we are. I think that would have been fairly near the beginning of our trip uh, because we we look full of energy, whereas I think towards the end, you know, we we rather got rather exhausted. It was so bloody hot. That's something you ought to know when you go to India, you're going to sweat and you're going to need to take a bottle with you. How do you deal with the heat? Are you good in the heat? No, I'm hopeless in the heat. I'm like a a great sweating whale. It's awful. Do you think it says a bit about the traveller as to how they get along with India? Because I think there's a lot of people who go and find it very challenging. And I've definitely heard people say, "I I wouldn't like to return there because they found it so difficult. Do you think it's a reflection of of the traveller and how maybe how easygoing or how resilient they are with how well they get on with somewhere like India? Yes, uh, but India has um, levels of travel that would suit everybody. When I was younger, um, people used to go from u- university in in a camper van with a, or a backpack and you can live very simply and cheaply that way. And they also have amazing, superior hotels like the Taj and in in Bombay, Mumbai. There is a, a level of holiday 
there for every budget or or non-budget. It, it is manifold. It, it's it's untrammeled, India. I can't tell you how wonderful it is. It's just glorious, and I I'm longing to go back. I really am longing for this bloody virus to be over so I can see India again. So I've I need to confess I've never I call myself a travel writer I've never been to India wonderful you've got it waiting for you what a wonderful thing to go to India for the first time so but I was wondering if you could help me imagine so if you kind of close your eyes and think of India is there a particular street or a place that you can you can kind of transport me to because I've I've got itchy feet Miriam and I'm, I'm struggling to to escape my bedroom in Brixton right now I suppose, truthfully, I think about the markets in India because there is a huge mass of people all intent on buying and getting a bargain. And there is such a variety of, of, of food displayed, things that we don't have. And it's all burgeoning and, and fresh and the smells of different vegetables, different fruits people scurrying about and the women of course the women of India are so beautiful the saris are so colorful so your senses are assailed all your senses are assailed the eye uh, the nose the ears it's um, it's humanity rushing about in beauty I don't know what else to tell you uh, how to how to bring it into your into your eyes. Just colour and um, excitement and a lot of dust and sometimes elephants in the streets and cows. There's a a wildness there. Although, of course, the the British barrage made its impact. So if you're in Delhi, for example, you see great buildings, great public buildings built when it was the jewel in the crown. And uh, the, there's a, a confidence about those buildings that we don't now have anymore because, quite rightly, empire is over. But when it flourished, it, it knew how to build this actually this plays into a quite a difficult conversation we've been having on the travel desk recently about about our tendency in Britain to see the world through a kind of colonial lens like this enduring sense of us and them and the UK being the dominant force and you know going off to experience exotic and otherly places i just i wanted to know what was your opinion on that no doubt we have to stop thinking of ourselves as uh, the the dominant nation, because honestly we're not anymore, and I think if if you go with with that attitude you're you're not going to have a very good time. but when you travel, you should always travel with with an open mind as uh, I think actually that there is a, a psychological state of being a traveler of not holding on to your your home ideas and your where you come from too strongly just 
be in a kind of pleasant limbo, remembering what you've come from, but open to the new experience that travel brings you. That's what it's for. And there's nothing more wonderful than turning the corner because you don't know what's going to be on the, around the corner. I'd like to move on to your third photo now, which is of the view from a house that you've owned for many years in rural Tuscany. I've got to say, even just looking at this photo has slowed my heart rate down to a holiday pace. Tell me, where, where exactly in the world are we here? Am I right? This is the picture of Montesi from a slight distance with the blue hills in the background. Yes, that's the one. It's um, Those are the Siena hills. Uh, it's about 25k from Siena, which is one of the most gorgeous places on earth. And of course, there's a great olive tree in the foreground. And of course, the the cypresses there, that's the typical tree of of. Tuscany, and they're under threat because there's a, a nasty little virus. You see, trees get them too, and it's killing all the cypresses. The, the place on the very top is the old Castello, and we don't, we don't live in the old medieval village, which, which, you, which you see. We're on the outskirts, a bit seven minutes walk away. But that that picture is to me what real beauty is. Little villages with the hills beyond, the valley and the trees and the olives, the different greens. That's a very typical Tuscan scene. How, and how come you ended up having this home in such a beautiful place? I went to Tuscany first with my partner. It was the first big, well, the second big holiday that we had. The first was in, was in Scotland. And we decided that we wanted to to buy somewhere once we'd been. And we found Montesi, we found this place. And I remember running around this house in, in, the, in the village there. And we ran around from room to room. It had been empty for eight years because 1966 was the end of the Metzadria system. So all the indentured farm workers were evicted by the landlords, leaving thousands of empty farmhouses around Italy, which were immediately snapped up by the English, of course. And that's why there are so many English in Tuscany now. And there was this house with great vaulted ceilings and wonderful vistas and we ran through it all. I, that's what I remember. Just running through the house, around and around and in and out, up the stairs. There was, there was only external stairs then, the stone stairs. And we looked at each other and we knew that we had to buy it. That was it. And that was the beginning of my, of my experience in Italy. And I, it was the first house I ever bought, actually, in 1973. And we... Uh, the three of us shared it. Peter, a friend of ours, and my partner and I, for, we bought it for 12,500 lira, which was roughly 12,500 pounds, I suppose, uh, in English money. And um, it, we furnished it and did it up for 21,000 pounds. So it cost each of us 7,000 pounds in 1973. And how's you going with the locals? Like, is your... 
Is your Italian up to scratch? One of my little anecdotes, I suppose, about Italy, to be specific, is because our language is not good. My, my Italian speaking is not too good. We, we buy wood. It's, we only have wood in the, in the house uh, for, for fire. And we had to get some wood from a place. And the, 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 the guy who was selling the wood showed us a picture of his son who was in full carabinieri uniform which is very, you know, with flowing uh, peak on his cap and just very attractive. And we we said, you know, wow, tremendo, which we thought meant tremendous. Well, actually, it means ghastly. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, tremendo. And we said, si, si, tremendo, tremendo. Well, he wasn't pleased. <laughs> And it was only when we got home and and talked about it to other people. And they said, oh, you shouldn't have said that. You should have said stupendo. That's different. <laughs> the Yeah, I guess that's the unexpected perils of learning a romance language, isn't it? I've said I'm impressed you even got that far. My Italian currently stretches to ciao bella and that's about it. But given I don't know Tuscany very well and some of our listeners might not either, I, want, I wanted if you could take us there via the wonders of audio. And describe for me what a perfect day in your village would look and sound like. Well, a perfect morning. Wake up early and I, you, you look at the sky. The sky is always very important to me when I'm travelling. And you hear birdsong and you look across a valley and there are little houses and you can faintly hear the sheep bells because there are flocks of sheep on the distant hills and they they wear they wear sheep bells and then you get up and go out and go walking down into the village to the barino and you order an espresso and maybe take a copy of the International Herald Tribune. And you sit at a little table outside and talk to the other people who are there because that's the sort of social centre of the village. It's a, a little village. So there is, you go past the five churches, the, the shop, um, the shop that sells plants, the shop that sells little chachkis and souvenirs. And you talk about what's going to happen today, what's in the newspapers. There's usually a few Americans there because they own houses locally. And obviously the Montizani people. And then you walk back. And the air is very sweet and it's uphill. And in the spring, the poppies are out in the fields. And it's it's very beautiful. And if you happen to walk at night along the, the path to the house, the fireflies are out and they're flying about in a little glimpse of, of light. You mentioned before this idea of the emotional and educational value of travel. 
someone someone who clearly has a long-standing relationship with Italy. Are there any particular things that you think it can teach you as a traveller? It teaches you by showing you beauty. That's that's what it teaches you. That that what surrounds you, what you look at, is important. If you look at beauty, your mind is soothed and calmed and charmed, and maybe you will not be so obliterated and in pieces as, as we are today. I remember one voyage I took particularly, which was by ferry from Alexandria to Venice. And I arrived in the morning on on the Grand Canal as the dawn was just coming up on the cupolas and the spires. It was the most shamefully beautiful experience I've ever had. And my reaction to it was to say to myself, oh my God, that's over the top. I was not in a sense, educated enough to absorb and enjoy the astonishing beauty of it. To see it all at once, to, to glide along in, in this boat and look from, from side to side of the canal and see the sun glinting on, on, on those buildings. It was majestic, but it was I was not used to receiving such glory and I think that's what travel does it helped me to absorb the glory the unfamiliar glory and in the years since then like like all of our guests on this show so far in fact you've done a mixture of travel for pleasure and for work I wanted to know how do the two compare for you well, I the, the thing about holidays, when you travel just for yourself, you, you please yourself. If you have a, a place you want to stop and investigate further, you can. When you're doing it for a, a programme, obviously, the, the, the programme dictates what you do and, and how, who you see. And that is also interesting because it's another perspective that you're engaging with. But... Um, it's not as relaxing. Whereas when you're traveling for yourself, you can do it at your own pace. And my pace has slowed considerably as I've got older. And it is more rewarding. That thing about if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium. I would hate that. I like to take my time in a place to observe, to taste and to talk. And I've, I've now got a bit more Italian than I did at the beginning. So now I can actually savour the people as well. And ultimately, at the very end of everything, it is the people that matter. The sky can change, yes, and the architecture and the culture varies. But it is the people that, that fill your heart when you come home. Something you just mentioned about if it's Tuesday, we must be in Belgium gave me a little flashback to the last cruise that I was on up in Norway and that awful reality of you know popping into a port city 
you're told you've got four hours on a pre-arranged excursion. I can't help but ask, um, have you ever been on a cruise, Miriam? And if so, how do you find it? I have. I went to Israel on a on a cruise because I was afraid to fly. And, uh, of course, the thing about cruises is is the cast. In other words, the other passengers. And they were all um, dentists' wives from New York. And all they could say to me is, what are you doing? Reading a book. You're all, Every time I see you, you're reading, reading. What's the matter with you? You should be dancing. Have you, uh, you know, go find a boyfriend. There's lots of nice men. Look at the sailors on the boat. What are you doing? Reading, reading. <laughs> <laughs> I never forgot that. <laughs> So uh, what I mean to say is that if you're on a cruise and the other people on the cruise are not quite your type, it's not worth it. I'm sure our listeners have taken good note of that advice. Miriam, thank you so much for sharing your postcards with us. It's been a pleasure and a delight talking with you today. Very interesting questions, Greg. Thank you. That was Miriam Margulies. Now, next week, I speak to Radio 1 DJ, podcaster and festival aficionado Clara Ampho. She tells me about her love for the Notting Hill Carnival, about a recent trip to Tokyo, and she started by telling me about one of her earliest memories of visiting Ghana as a child. We went back to the house that my dad was brought up in. I remember me and my little brother Chris and, like, four of my cousins all had to share a bed. That's Clara Amfo, up next on Postcards. Postcards is presented by Greg Dickinson and produced by Pete Norton and Theodora Leloudis. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a rating and a review where you're listening or tell a friend about the podcast. And remember that you can see all of the photos discussed in this episode online via the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening.